Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Open your Bibles with me, please, if you would, to Ephesians, the New Testament letter of Ephesians. It's towards the second half of your Bible, towards the second half of the New Testament. If you need help finding Ephesians, you can ask somebody next to you, or you can go to your Bible's table of contents. It'll take you to the exact page number. As you're turning to Ephesians, I want to share a quote with you that I've shared before and that I hope some of you have read, uh, but I think it's worth sharing again. It comes from A.W. Tozer. It's the very first sentence in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And he says, what comes to our minds when we think about God says the most important thing about us. I think that's a profound quote. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes. What comes to our minds when we think about God says the most important thing about us. Similarly, in the same vein of thinking, the same principle, what we think about when we think about a relationship with God determines where we spend eternity. How you conceive of relating to God, how you conceive of getting to God, how you conceive of being with God can and indeed will determine your eternity. So for the Christian, Really, for any human being, there is no greater subject to give ourselves over to, no greater thing to give our minds over to contemplating than how we can be made right with God. Now, if you're born again, you and I both know that the very heartbeat of Christianity is the gospel. It's the foundation, it's the fundamentals, it's the basics, but it's also the entire Christian life, the entire Christian existence, it's what our whole eternity is going to be built upon, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, there is no greater thing you can give yourself over to the study of than the gospel of Christ. In fact, as God has given us His Word, He's given us His Word to reveal Himself to us, but He has not revealed Himself to us apart from His gospel. It's the very lens by which we know God. It's the very avenue by which we get to God. It's the very house that we dwell in to be with God. In fact, we may know God as creator. We may know God as judge. We may know God as anything else, a number of other things. But we know Him as nothing except first and foremost the Redeemer. He's a redeeming creator. A redeeming judge. So the gospel is the very center of everything of our Christian faith. And it's good for us to consider it. We've been telling you for a few weeks now that that's what we were going to do this morning. We were going to look at the gospel. But I have two real goals in doing that. First, and maybe most obvious, is so that those of you this morning who are here who are doubting your salvation, 
or who know it to be true that you're actually not saved would today finally be saved. That just maybe by God's grace and by God's mercy, even if it's been the one millionth time that you've heard the gospel, just maybe today you would come to believe it, to understand it, to be saved by it. But also, my other goal is for those of us as Christians to be reinvigorated by the gospel. To reestablish our foundation. To set our feet back on solid ground. To grow in the grace of the gospel. To grow in gratitude for the gospel. To grow in the worship of God based on the gospel. Now disclaimer, I cannot say everything that there is to be said about the saving work and message of Jesus. And that's frankly not my purpose. I simply want to take you to a clear, simple, basic, yet faithful depiction of the gospel found in Ephesians, specifically chapter 2. I personally don't think there can be any clearer text to summarize the whole message of the gospel than Ephesians chapter 2. So begin with me in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 10. I hope with all my heart that this passage is incredibly familiar to you. I hope that as you open your Bible, that you've got markings on the pages based out of this passage because of its importance. Writing to Ephesian believers, writing in the past tense, Paul writes in verse 1 and says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now the text breaks down pretty easily, pretty clearly. Verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul's talking about the state of humanity apart from Christ. It's the state of sin. And really, 
to understand both the beauty and the power of the gospel or the glory and the wonder of the gospel, we must start where the gospel starts and that's with the deepest, darkest pit that humanity finds itself in, which is the pit of sin. You see, for us to be lifted to the highest of heights, that, like the gospel does, we must first go to the lowest of lows. That's exactly what Paul's intention is here. He starts where we must start. I remember once getting into a conversation with my family. And it was about this time, several, several years ago, uh, because I remember Christmas decorations. And I remember having a, oh, I wanted to say debate. It was an argument. I remember having an argument with them. And it was me against everybody. And my whole point and premise was this. You will not understand the gospel fully until you understand the blackness of sin. And church, I still believe that. It's not fun to consider humanity apart from Christ. But I don't think, I really don't believe, you will be awestruck by the glories of God's saving purposes if you don't first consider the blackness, not just of each other, but the blackness of your own heart in sin. And so it's with that thinking I come eagerly to verses 1, 2, and 3. There's three ways Paul describes humanity in these verses. He describes us as dead. He describes us as enslaved. He describes us as condemned in these three verses. All of this is how we all exist. Every human being. It's a universal truth. It's how we all exist without Christ. We begin with the first one in verse 1. We're dead. Spiritually dead. Now notice in verse 3, he's going to reference that you actually live. So in verse 3, you live, but in verse 1, you're dead. That's because the dead that he references in verse 1 is a spiritually dead, even if you're physically walking and talking and breathing. Inside, at the core of who you are, at your soul level, you are a corpse without Christ. There's no life in you. You're unconscious before God. Unresponsive. Unable to feel. Unable to live. Unable to move. Unable to grow. Unable to find any truth, any meaning, any purpose, any reality, any satisfaction whatsoever. Everything in your life is as the preacher in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes says, vanity upon vanity. Nothing is satisfying. Nothing is pleasurable. Nothing lasts. You are dead. A bottomless pit. Not just broken. Not just corrupted. Not just off course. When it comes to your standing before God, if you are not found in Christ, you are as a dead corpse. 
Now notice in verse 1, he ties this overarching theme, this overarching description of humanity as dead, spiritually speaking. He ties it into two specific things. And he's not being redundant in verse 1. He means something specific by using these two words. He says you're dead in, and we could just as readily say because of, trespasses and sins. Again, that's not redundancy. So what is he saying? What does he mean by using two different terms? Well, trespasses carries with it what we think of trespassing. What we think of the word trespassing. It means going on to a piece of property you're not allowed to go into. Knowingly going into an area that you're not supposed to be in. Willingly stepping across the boundary line. Trespasses are those willing things that we commit to go against God. We know we ought not do such things or be such things or be such people, and yet we do them anyways. We shouldn't think these things, desire these things, or even we should be doing those things, and we consciously don't. Those are trespasses. So what are sins? Well, we have a Somewhat good definition of sin in the Bible as we read this morning from Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. God as creator has the right to impose standards and values and measurements. And He has done so in His law and He's done so according to His own nature. And sin is when we don't live up to the standard. In other words, it's failure. So Paul writes and he addresses the two very broad categories of sin. And he says those sins that you do and just those failures of who you are, those mistakes that you make of not living up, they both result in the same thing. You're spiritually dead. He goes on in verse 2, he says, you're not just dead, you're also enslaved. He uses a set of words here and a couple of phrases here in verse 2. He says we're following things. Apart from Christ, we follow that which we're like. And he says we're following first the course of this world. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, John reminds us this world is passing away. It's passing away because it's wicked. It's passing away because it's imperfect. It's passing away because it's corrupted by sin and tainted by sin and even governed by sin. And so one day God will wipe it out of creation. He'll do away with it and start over. This world is passing away. But those of us, those of you who are without Christ, you're doing that which you only can do and you're following the course of this world. I think that means two things. I think that means you're also going to pass away just like this world. God will also wipe you out. But not in an annihilation sort of sense. It's not as if you'll seek to exist. More as in conquering victory. Your fate will be just like the world's. You will not endure. But in another sense, I think following the course of this world means you're governed and controlled by the standards and values of this world. 
which remind you are passing away because they're wicked. I think in our day, we can clearly see this principle played out by experience. Most people I encounter, most people I watch that are unbelievers, they think they're making their own decisions. They think they're following their own destination. They think they're being unique because they're being authentic. They think they're one in a million. And in some sense they are, but in another real sense, in the way that they see the world, the way that they think, and the decisions that they make, the choices that they make, the way that they live their life, they're just like everybody else. Taking their cue from the world. Influenced by wickedness. Controlled by a world that promotes nothing but self. I have taught in my classes at Southwestern, that we are all, to some degree, and often to a degree greater than we realize, a product of our culture. Which means we have certain blinders on because of the places that we've grown up and the ways that we've been raised. If you're an unbeliever without Christ, you're a product of the world entirely. You have no concept of reality outside of the world's influence. You're a slave to what the world says is trendy, to what the world says is popular, to what the world says is good, to what the world says is right. And you know what is so torturous about that? Is today it's ever-changing. And you can't keep up. And when you try to keep up and when you fail, the world casts you off like you don't matter. Those without Christ follow the world because they know no different. They also follow the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now we know who Paul's talking about here, who he's referencing. He's referencing the devil. And he's saying, you're under the leadership of the one who's already been conquered. You're under the leadership of the devil. You're following one that cannot win. You're following one that hates you. You're following one that's cruel and evil and wicked and despises you. Regardless of the lies he peddles your way. We don't know exactly what Paul means when he references the devil as the prince of the power of the air. There's some debate. I think there's two Two uh, interpretations that are most plausible. One takes the reference of the air, the prince of the power of the air, to refer to spiritual things, as we'll find, as you would find later in this letter in chapter six. He's the ruler of spiritual, spiritual, the spiritual realm and, and principalities and things, things of that nature. And they'll take the reference in the end of verse 2, sons of disobedience, to refer to demonic spirits. He's leading these principalities, these demonic spirits. And you're following in their footsteps. Others might say, when Paul references that he's the prince of the power of the air, he's almost sarcastically saying, He's got lordship over nothing. He's lord of the air. He's prince of the air. There's no sustenance, no, no material, no enduring. 
The sons of disobedience are all of mankind. And He's leading them in His kingdom of air as an army against God in disobedience. Wherever you land, the point is still the same. Those without Christ cannot help but to follow the influence and leading of the enemy. What a what a harsh thing to say, right? There may be some sitting there thinking, well, I don't follow the devil. I don't worship Satan. I don't spend my time thinking about how to be evil and doing wicked things. After all, I'm not a murderer. I don't rob banks. I don't cheat on my taxes. I try to obey the law and this, that, and the other. I don't steal. I don't lie. You're missing the point. The Bible permits no neutrality. You either follow Christ or you belong to the devil. Not only are we enslaved apart from Christ and following these things, we also live by certain standards that enslave us. Verse 3, we're told we live in the passions of our flesh. The flesh is the uh, biblical reference to the sinful nature of a, of a person. The sinful impulses of a person. and Passions are often used in the Bible to refer to things like lust, self-centeredness, selfish, prideful ambition. He says you live according to those passions, which means they dictate you. They determine your choices. They determine your career. They determine your thinking. He goes on and he says, you also live carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, you live for your belly. You live for your survival. You live for your physical pleasure. You have no real meaning, no real purpose, no real satisfaction that you know of. You live for whatever your mind tells you is good. Whatever your body tells you feels good. Whatever your mind thinks is right. It's slavery. It's living as if you have nothing more than animal instinct. It's a debased mind that you follow. A depraved flesh that's dictating your future. Well, thirdly here, he says, people apart from Christ are also condemned. He calls them in the end of verse 3, children of wrath. And he says specifically, you're children of wrath by nature. What is wrath? John Stott describes wrath as God's constant hostility toward evil. And one again might say, I'm not evil. To which I would reply yet again, there is no neutrality in the Bible. You're either found righteous in Christ or evil in your flesh. And God dispenses wrath not at a whim, not out of emotion, not without reason, 
God dispenses His wrath incredibly predictably every time upon evil. Now notice here, He also says, your children of wrath, which means your sins that, that result in your enslavement and you being dead, earn the full eternal punishment of God, but they do so because you're sinful by nature. It's these truths of the gospel that offend so many people. Essentially, what this passage is saying, what Paul is saying is, you think you're free, but you're not. You're enslaved. You think you're thriving, but you're not. You're dead. And you think you're good, but you're not. You're a child of wrath. And you are so based out of your nature. The very deepest, most inward part of who you are. At the very core of your soul. You're not just prone to sin at the core of your soul. You're corrupted by sin. Paul wastes no ink here in plunging our minds and our hearts to the reality of the depth of our wickedness. We are dead enslaved and condemned without Christ. And whatever future we have is only a future of condemnation. I want you to just think of... Um, let, me, let me just flip over there. You don't have to right now. But John chapter 3, one of the most comforting passages in all of the Bible. You guys know this text. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He shares... What has become the most famous verse in all of Scripture? Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He goes on to say in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Wonderful verses. Comforting verses. But we stop too short. Verse 18, He goes on to say, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Your condemnation will be realized in the future because the result of condemnation is wrath. But in reality, if you're not found in Christ today, you're condemned now. You're condemned already. You live under condemnation. And at any moment, God may demand your bill and call your debt past due. We toy with Christianity too often. And we entertain ourselves with the gospel too often. And we find joy in our Christian coffee mugs and our t-shirts and our bumper stickers and our slogans. We boast about our conferences and our books. Remember, Christian, this is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And if Christ 
is not covering your sins with his own blood, then you are dead, enslaved, and headed towards a future of condemnation. Perhaps more often than we let it, the weight and the seriousness of man's plight without Christ ought to rest heavy on our souls and our minds from time to time. Now, that's not the gospel. It's true, all of that's true. That we're dead, that we're enslaved, that we're condemned. Like the rest of mankind. Notice there, let me just give you a blurb, Christian. Notice, like the rest of mankind means not only is that universal for everybody, but let's make it a bit more personal. The people you know who aren't here, they fit into this mold also. Maybe that stirs our evangelistic zeal a bit. But that's not the gospel. That's only part of the gospel. And if we were to dwell on that alone, we would not be dwelling on the gospel. We would be dwelling on part of the gospel. The rest of the gospel is fleshed out in the preceding verses. Verse 4. God acts. Humanity is in the darkest pit imaginable. And we are often worse off than we would ever realize. But by the time we get to verse 4, God intervenes. And He initiates something. And he's resolved and determined not to leave humanity in the blackness of the pit of sin. And so he acts. And he initiates. If there's any hope for you and I, any hope whatsoever to avoid the condemnation and thus the wrath of God, any hope to find life, any hope to have meaning or purpose, any hope to be made right with God, God must be the first one to move. And if He is not, we have no hope. But He has. And so we have all the hope. Notice the profound nature of God's divine movement here. Often, we consider... That if we've been wronged, there's only two options. Revenge, or we wait till our offender comes and apologizes to us. But that's not the case with God. God is the one who's been offended, and God is the one who makes the first move. The first move to redeem, the first move to restore, the first move to reconcile. He's not waiting for you. He's coming after you. Some of the most wonderful verses that encourage us in this way of thinking are found in Romans chapter 5. And I have a feeling we reference them often, but not in vain, I hope. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know God came after you not because you had it together. Not because you had figured it out. Christ didn't die because you had put away your pride or your addictions, or your lust, or your gossip, or your bitterness, or your hatred. Christ didn't come for you, and God didn't reach out to you because you had covered things up really well. God tells us in His unchanging, infallible Word, He came for you when you were at your worst. Your lowest, your blackest, your most disgusting. That's where God moved towards you at. First John chapter 4 says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And then sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the appeasement. To satisfy the just demand of God's wrath. God acts. God initiates. God moves toward the sinner, not when the sinner cleans him or herself up, but when the sinner's at their worst, God comes in. And what does He do in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4? He dispenses mercy out of His wealth of mercy. Now mercy, this statement makes us think of two, two things specifically. It makes us think, number one, of the heart of God. When God sees sinful humanity in their sinful plight without Christ, He is moved to give mercy. And He is also described here as being rich in that mercy which He gives. Sometimes it's hard to remember, but God is warm and tender towards repentant sinners. Eager to give mercy. It also reminds us of the seriousness of our sin. Our sin actually does warrant punishment, doesn't it? Our sin actually does deserve wrath. As I said a few weeks ago, the punishment does fit the crime. But God has mercy. Not wishing to punish, wishing to save. Not giving us what we, would, what we deserve, giving us more. So God moves in verse 4. God initiates. God acts. And He acts by dispensing mercy based out of love. Notice the word because there in verse 4. He's doing this because of the great love with which He loved us. Just as I read there in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He loved us so much by sending His only Son to us. 
in verse 8 of 1 John 4, I didn't read it, but John describes God there. He says God is love. It's a description of His being, of His personhood, of His nature. This is who God is. What else motivates Him to forgive? What else motivates Him to pardon? What else would motivate Him to act? Our God is love and that love has caused him to exercise his mercy towards us. And he does us does this of his own initiative, not because we bring anything to the table. Notice verse five. He loves us. He acts. He shows mercy even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we were still ungodly, sinful. At the end of verse 5 here, what did God do? He acted and He dispensed that mercy based out of a great love, even a love that's not dependent upon our ability or our offerings or our reputation or, or, or anything else. But to, but to what goal? To what end? Well, Paul tells us in verse 5, to make us alive together with Christ. Notice the complete opposite from where we started. We who are dead in our sins by nature are made alive with Christ by grace. God breathes into your soul Eternal life causes you to be born, gives you meaning and purpose and feeling and joy and pleasure and hope. He removes the veil off of your heart to believe. He unnumbs your mind so that you understand. He pulls off the scales from your eyes so that you can finally see. And live according to reality. He made us alive. Since this is such a direct contrast to verse 1, we can, we can broaden this out. We were dead, now we're alive. We were dead because of our sins, then what makes us alive? It's the reversal of our sins. The reversal of the consequence of our sins. The removal of our guilt. How does God remove our guilt? Paul tells us in verse 5, by grace. But not just declarative grace. Grace secured through divine justice acting upon the death of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we're told, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus took upon Himself at His cross, at the crucifixion, every last punishment and penalty for our sins. So that He could pay the price for us. And then He resurrected from the dead so that He could conquer death and sin and have life. And so that anybody bound to Him in faith would also have life. I want you to consider with me Colossians chapter 2, 
verse 13 and 14, it's almost the same language verbatim to the Colossian Christians, Paul writes, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by, this is how he did it, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This debt he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your debt, my debt, your penalty, my penalty, paid in full when Christ died on the cross. And Christ dies on the cross because God is full of great love even for sinners who have nothing to offer to Him. And He desires to dispense great mercy upon those who are enslaved to sin, condemned by their nature, and dead in their trespasses. God acts, and He acts through Christ. And this act of Salvation in Christ is purely of grace. Which means no amount of your good efforts, no amount of your work could bridge the gap between you and God that's been made by your sin. The smallest of sins separates humanity from God for all, from all, for all eternity. And not one ounce of religious works, religious deeds, good works, could ever bridge that gap. Only grace. Let me speed up through verses 6 and 7 here. Part of the Gospel is also understanding the, the end goal of the Gospel. And the end goal of the Gospel is that there's a, there's a future. We find this futuristic language in verses 6 and 7. And Paul says that God has not only made us alive, and then he interjects, by grace you have been saved, but he's also, he picks back up in verse 6, he's also raised us up with him. Which means one of the, the benefits of being made alive with Christ is that death no longer rules over us. Yes, we face it. We have friends and family that go through it. And if the Lord tarries one day, we will go through it. But the Christian knows death has no final say. And in some strange paradox, it's actually embraced. Because it becomes a door to paradise. That's all because in verse 6, God raises us up with Christ. That's resurrection language. And then He also seats us with Him. That's kind of a throne room language. We, we often read of God being seated upon His throne. Or Christ seated at the right hand of God. And then we have this allusion here in verse 6 to us being seated with Him. It tells of a future glory. It tells of a future victory. It tells of a future home in heaven right in the presence of Christ. Which, by the way, I'm forced here, constrained here to interject. That's what makes heaven heaven. The glorious presence of Christ. 
not the absence of work or the absence of disease or the absence of pain or the absence of who else or whatever else, though those things may still be benefits, what makes the glories of heaven so glorious and so desirable is the presence of Jesus. That's part of the future of the gospel, being seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And here's the other aspect, the third aspect of of the future of the gospel, verse 7. So we have first, that we'll be raised up with Him. Second, that we'll be with Him, seated with Him. And third, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I would summarize that by saying, He continues for all eternity to lavish His goodness on us. What's the benefit of the gospel? What's the benefit of giving up your life to be saved it's having life being with Christ and enjoying the good grace of God forever now the main and most important question verse 8 and 9 and 10 how do we gain this salvation how do you and I get it That is one of the most pressing questions that's always been before humanity. And the reason is because there's all kinds of wrong answers out there. Paul says it plainly. You're saved by grace through faith. He emphasizes it in verse 8. This is not... Your own doing. Not even your desires. Certainly not your behavior modification. It is a gift of God. And then to emphasize again, he repeats again in verse 9, just just this time with a little bit more explicit emphasis, not a result of works. so that no one may boast. Verse 10, we are His workmanship. If you're a Christian, you're a living example of the craftsmanship of a saving God. Now let's back up. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. So I'm just going to let Paul's words speak for themselves since I'm running out of time this morning. And assume that you understand what's being said here when he says you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by your own doing. That salvation is a gift. And I want to wrap up by highlighting just uh, the first part of verse 8. Grace By grace you've been saved through faith. What What is that faith? I think it's important to clarify. It is not simply agreeing with or believing the facts. Many well-meaning people who agreed with the Bible and believed the facts about God will spend an eternity in torment. Faith is much more than simply agreeing and simply believing. Faith is looking to this message of the Gospel and saying, it's true and I trust it. And my only hope is Christ. 
You see, the Christian faith is an active faith. And that means faith that saves produces something. And the first thing it produces, very first thing it produces, is to call out to God, to cry out to God in repentance. Pleading for the forgiveness of your sins. And then, for the rest of your Christian life, it lives on holding on to this promise. That God will keep the promise of Acts 2. That those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so to call upon the name of the Lord is to say, yes, I am dead in my sin, enslaved in my sin, condemned in my sin. I have no hope, no ability. I must leave that life behind and put all my trust in God's promise. You see, faith is believing not just facts, but believing the person. It's believing God when He says, if you call I'll save. And so what do you do? You call and you keep believing and you live in that belief. That's faith, church. How do you gain this salvation? First, not by your own doing. Second, by crying out to God in faith that He'll keep His promise and show you grace. This, if you're an unbeliever, is what you need to do today. I'm not inviting you to be saved. I'm imploring you to be saved. Lay aside pride with me. Lay aside reputation with me. And come confess with me that we need a Savior. And be saved today. And Christian... Don't we serve and belong to an awesome God? A saving God who reached into the blackest, darkest, deepest pit where we were gladly dwelling, pulled us out and made us alive, bound us to a son and gives us a hope and a future. This God is worthy of all of our devotion. This God is worthy of all of our sacrifices and specifically right now, immediately today, this God is worthy of all of our praise and worship, isn't He? I want to give you just a moment here to pray to the Lord, to ask Him, His Spirit, to help you know how to respond. Maybe today you do need to be saved. And I trust that if that's true, God will convict you of that. But if you're a Christian, maybe you and I need to contemplate what responding to the Gospel today looks like. How is God stirring up our affections for Him? How is God strengthening and increasing our faith in Him and our joy in Him? What does a devoted life to Him based out of the Gospel look like? Would you take just a few short seconds here? Ask the Lord how to respond. And then the band will come and lead us. Father, we would be amiss this morning if we rushed out of this moment. If we contemplated the truth of our condition without You, Christ, and if, if we heard the only solution to man's problem, to, to sinful humanity, 
and we didn't stop and linger in these thoughts for a moment, uh, we would be doing wrong. It is our prayer this morning that you would save the lost. If they're here this morning, they would come confessing their need for you as Savior. If they're watching online, they would contact us confessing their need for a Savior. Your children, Lord, who make up your church. We need to be infused with zeal and passion for you because of this gospel. Let us not rush away from it because it's familiar. Let us not rush away from it because we have other things to do. Let us not rush away from it because we're uncomfortable with it. But Lord, make us face reality. And we ask that you would save our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.